Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Girl, I've had a number of self-realizations recently. <laughs> I can't a wait number. to hear them. Quite a few. Oh my gosh. Um, one of them is this thing that I perpetually do of starting something and not finishing it. Mm. Yikes. And including <laughs> things that I really want to do, like have this microphone, because I have to deal with this sound quality of our podcast and it's always annoying to me. And I'm always like, I should get a, I have a mic. First it was, I need to get a mic. And then I got one and it didn't work out. Then it was, I need to get a new one. And I got it. And then it just sat like, because, you know, and you know what it is? Because it was like one obstacle. I couldn't figure out how to do this one part of it instead of just being like, okay, well, I have to keep working at it until I figure it out. I just put it over there. Well, what, what? <laughs> What put you over the edge? Like, how did you get the hurdle? Well, over the hurdle? because I am just starting to synthesize a few more important, you know, as they say, there's a little chicken left on that bone. There's a lot of chicken left on this bone. And I need to synthesize, you know, some of these holes in my functioning with like, I guess uh, understanding a little bit about why I have them, but but also just being like, okay, so you do this because of this, so you don't want to do it, so don't do it anymore. I don't know. Right. It sounds simplistic the way I'm saying it, but oh my how god, it feels to me, how it feels to me is like I'm finally facing myself oh. in a new way. Wow, that is which is amazing. a lot to say about this microphone, but still. <laughs> But no, but the microphone, it's not about the microphone. It's really right, about you. Oh my gosh. I went down the rabbit hole of um, watching 2020s last night and um, 2020 Tell is not a show. Everything. Okay. 2020 is not a show that's on my true crime radar because you it used to be really boring. Like it was like 2020 was the more older version of Dateline, like, you know, uh, meaning demographic, everything. Um stories, stuff like that. We're kind of more 60 minutes-esque, which who needs real news? I go for the pulp, you know? So, uh, amen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the real news is just terrible. Um, but no, but so I, so we're, where we're staying has, I, of course, I just now we're leaving and I just now discovered like there's all these channels and one of them is Hulu, whatever. I'm just very technologically ridiculous. So, but anyway, yeah. But anyway, so I, I got on the, the 2020 kick and there is a story I swear about Pablo Macaroni. I, know, I think that's, <laughs> Wait, that's not his real name. That's I not a person's real name. I think it Macaroni. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, he. You they gotta, called him Macaroni. <laughs> they stuck I, a feather in his cap and called him Macaroni. His, his, um. His his uh his mother and father were Penne and Rotini and he uh, anyway um, <laughs> little sister Farfalle Farfalle okay. um, anyway back to pasta <laughs> humor on a Tuesday um okay so so anyway this gentleman 
Oh my gosh. And talk about mass delusion. So he was this superstar heart surgeon doing cut and then cutting edge tracheotomy um, replacements and stuff. Turns out and, and fell in love with this investigative reporter that was doing a story on him. And it turns out the whole guy was a sham. He was not even a heart. He was not even a surgeon. He was doing. Oh, wait. Oh, Dr. Death. Is this Dr. Death? I don't know. No, no. This is an Italian, handsome ass Italian man who looked like George Clooney. So there's multiple of these. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a sad state of affairs. In pasta. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the best joke I've ever heard. Multiple impostas. Oh, my God. Anyway. Oh, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Um, Okay. So he, so (laughs) this impasta, he... Um, he like totally swindled the the clinic where they give out the Nobel Peace Prize in medicine. He worked there. The guy was like, talk about mass delusion. So it turns out he was a total sham. And it's like, you know, I was like, well, how does this happen? And it happens because he was an attractive, white, Italian, handsome dude yeah. who, who also... Mm-hmm was so charming, but really he's a serial killer. Like three of his patients died. Right. Of course. Cause he's doing like human experiments. He's not even regulated. He's not even, he's, he was a surgeon. So he was a surgeon, but he was doing high, high level heart and neck surgeries a- around the world and had no training in that. <laughs> oh my God. And, and that seems like that, w- I don't know anything about surgery, but like I'd pick, you know, legs or, <laughs> Just like something where ah. it's not going to kill you. You may lose a limb, but you're no, you're no. not going to yeah. die. I mean, that sounds so complicated. I, I would um, choose skin tag removal surgery. You yeah. know, like okay. that's yeah. what I would that's do cool. because that's yeah. you just tie it off, call it a day. But this guy there was like know. so. But the story was about this woman who really who fell in love with him, and then exp- and and he said like the lies, the lies were unbelievable he told her and it it actually made sense like as i was watching i'm like no i would have been in her same boat he like slowly was like oh i know some important people and then it turned out the pope was gonna marry them he doesn't even marry people but that but and he wished so the thing that i found fascinating was that the true devils of this world are people who can mix the truth with a lie and then confuse you, utterly confuse you so intensely that you don't know that, you, that they throw yeah. you off because he, he'd whisper away to all these places. He was making top dollar as a high-end surgeon. So um, anyway, it was fascinating. It's called um, True true Lies. I mean. What, what did he want from her? Just she was just a woman to marry. So I mean, was she beautiful? That's what we can't. She was beautiful, yeah, but she, we they she couldn't figure out like what his it's like it's like we say in our pilot, what's your angle, engine? You know what I mean? Like what we couldn't figure out what his angle was. Like I I say we, me and the lady. I'm like pretending I'm friends with her now. <laughs> okay, I couldn't <laughs> But I'm watching this and I'm going, I hear you, sister. She was like yeah. an, and she was an independent woman who had a job as a producer for a major news outlet she wasn't but whatever her job was shouldn't matter but it wasn't like she was uh 
whatever, a typical, people might assume right. a pumpkin or something. Right. But anyway, mm -hmm. so the angle was never, you can't ever figure it out. So she thinks it was like the high of, of hooking her into the story. But it's like, that oh, seems like, yeah. like a drug high of the, of getting away yeah. with the lie and like, you know, like covering, trying to cover his bases. But the guy, anyway, so what, what it, what I want, the takeaway was, that is the most dangerous when someone mixes truth with their lies because yes. it becomes a muddle of like, of mm -hmm. like, um, you just can't wade your way out of it. It's like, you're, you're stuck. And he, and her life was, you know, the, the wedding was, was she invited five, you know, 300 people and they were like living, going to stay in a castle. And then she had to send, and I'm thinking, oh my God, mm. sending that retraction would have been anyway. Oh yeah. yeah like, sorry, yeah. it's not the embarrassment factor of all my friends. But all the friends, right. the friends were like, we knew, you know, usually the friends of this are like, we knew from the beginning he was a, a jerk face. Mm -hmm. No, they all bought in too. They were like, he had the right mm -hmm. dose of humility with, oh, so that mm -hmm. is like the true sociopathic, like, so yeah. scary because he mixed all these things together and created this character. So Mr. Macaroni, <laughs> he... <sighs> He was really, he was really quite special, but it got me just thinking about, you know, this idea of, of sort of mass delusion that we buy in and dude, they bought in all over the world and let him do surgeries all over the world on critically ill people. What in the hell? Yeah. And, and, and the fact that when you started to bring this up, I was like, are you talking about Dr. Death? Because that's a whole podcast. And so there's many people like this you know wandering around the world or did you ever listen to the one called um what was she called oh the nurse the con queen oh. it is a podcast that's called chameleon and it, the subject was they call referred to as the con queen of hollywood oh you got oh you gotta you've i'll listen oh. To listen to it. I don't even want to say one thing about it because okay. I want to spoil it. It's juicy. Okay. It's so good. The con queen. Of Hollywood. Chameleon. So she 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 oh, yeah. she she conned her way into Hollywood. Oh girl, just listen. Okay, just I'm gonna listen. Okay. Listen. It's, so it's so good. And that got me thinking too about like what we talk about sometimes on this podcast and, and when when you and I are talking, it's like if you perpetuate something, if you walk in with confidence, as as I used to say uh, to with a friend, swinging your dick. If you walk in swinging mm -hmm. your dick, people mm -hmm. will believe you to a certain extent. It's 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 oh yeah, it's a com like that's why they call it a confidence game. That's why they call it a confidence game, and that is so funny that that was your like meditation for this morning because um that is the thing that I wanted to <gasps> run by you. Well, but but first. Uh, uh, were you going to say anything else about? No, um, just that Mr. Macaroni was fascinating. He was also really attractive, but not too attractive. Like it wasn't like fake plastic surgery attractive. Like he was, oh, it was crazy. And I thought he was totally sexy too. I was like, and he's Italian and he speaks all these languages. And But he probably doesn't speak them in-depthly. You know, like he can pass right. as a genius. Oh. Yeah. 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 It's really something to behold. The 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 truly slick 
I mean, in a way, you just have to admire it. Like, wow, you 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 just figured it all out. You figured out exactly what to say, exactly when to say it, and exactly what tone, wearing exactly the right thing. Like, it's just it's it's too bad it's so dangerous because it's such an amazing skill set. That's it. That's what I walked away with it too. It's like, how can you take these skill sets and use them? for good. And these people should be encouraged to become part of the CIA, right? Actors, anything. I mean, anything, but don't, don't operate on real people. Oh my God. Don't operate on real people. Honestly, we have doctors for that. Right. They, they they worked very hard to learn how to do it. Yeah. And you can probably make, I mean, if the thing that, see, I'm going to guess that the thing that encourages these people is not necessarily the money. It's more just the con. They, they love the idea that they made somebody believe something that's not true. Yeah. There's a special thrill that I, I can't relate to in any way. No, my relate, my only way of relating to it is like feeling like, and I always go back to the, the, when my ex boss's wife, uh, mother called, um, and mm-hmm. I made the lie. The only thing I can relate to is, and if people don't know, like basically it was a lie I told that snowballed into a ridiculous thing when my boss confronted me about it, about her mother, whether or not her mother called. Uh, it was so dumb. But but I can relate to the snowball effect. But mm-hmm. but like, oh no, now I need to keep it going, keep the con going. I can relate to that, right. but not to the extent which it just seems too much. I think I dropped out of a heart attack. I already got a weird ticker. My heart would stop with all the stress. Oh, absolutely. The the thing that, so the only like real up close experience I have with that was, was my dad. He was, he was, I don't know if I would even say he's a great liar. Cause I, I didn't a lot, a lot of what he said, I believed, I guess, but mostly once I knew he was a liar, it was, just, but he would do the thing of lying about like, just you're not wearing glasses right now he'd say to you and you'd be like and for a second you might say wait am I not wearing glasses but but at the end and and I would be like why why that why that doesn't even benefit you that's there's no but I guess maybe it was this he liked the idea of just being and he was a salesman very good salesman he liked the idea of being able to prop up an untruth and have people believe it must it must make you feel very powerful to do that it must because because and then and then the flip side of that is how powerless must you have felt in your life as right. a child right. to have to create right. that what happened to you you know and and i know for me because even my little boss story it's like what happened to me was i had a mom who would punish you if you made a mistake. So then you, you didn't want to make a mistake. So you didn't want to admit you made a mistake. And that's why I didn't admit to my female boss, i.e. mom that I had made a mistake. Mm -hmm. So I get it. But what must Mm -hmm. have happened to Mr. Macaroni for him to go that far? Whoa, Mr. Macaroni had a real, he must've been in some hot water at some point. (laughs) Boiling, boiling. even. Hey, let me run this by you. So the thing I wanted to to talk to you about is exactly self-confidence and a part of my recent, you know, journey within, let's say, has been just thinking about confidence and and so <clears throat> in my life confidence has always been something that I 
either had in any given moment or didn't. And there was a few things I could point to that may make me feel more confident and a lot of things I can point to that make me feel less confident. But never have I been able to reliably cultivate a sense of confidence. Like when people say something like, well, just walk in with confidence. It's like, well, to me, the the way I translate that in my mind is just hope that that day you feel confident. Because if you don't, then there's no amount of conjuring or summoning you can do. Like I remember feeling uh, when I was six years old, I got a pair of cowboy boots and they made me feel confident for whatever reason. So, and it's true that every time I put on a pair of of, uh, cowboy boots, which I don't, actually have right now, then I feel confident. But I don't have any like, I don't have any practice of cultivating confidence. I don't have any trip, chick, uh, tips or tricks. Uh And I'm just wondering if you have confidence, if, if you cultivate it, how, how you, how you get there, what stands in your way, et cetera. So I, I feel the first thing that comes to mind is I think Starting with the idea that for me, I I don't always have it, but when I can get there is when I start with the idea that I'm powerless, really. So that it comes from a place of, if I try to manufacture confidence, it, 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 it like you can pump yourself up, but if, if, if the core of me feels less than, which is a lot of the time, right, then it's going to not take hold. The confidence is not going to stick. So then I'm like, well, then where am I left? Well, then then I'm left with, okay, so I grew up and I, as an adult, have been in situations where I feel less than, less than, less than, less than. Okay. I'm powerless over that feeling. It is part of my DNA. It is just like a, like an addict. It's part of my DNA, that powerlessness. Okay. So the acceptance of that, like I accept that I am not someone who feels like I'm worthy a lot of the time. I can fake it. I can, but if you, if you, that is just my situation. So then it's like, I'm powerless over that, but what can I do? I accept it. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, as someone would say um, that I met said, then I'm going to try to use that acceptance and that sort of vulnerability about feeling less than as my superpower. Mm-hmm. So turning, okay. turning the shame of it all of like, I don't have confidence. I'm not confident. I'm not, uh, uh, what's wrong with me. Basically it translates to why are all these other people confident? They can walk in swinging their dicks and I'm like hiding in a corner. All right. Well, that's because I lived through a certain amount of trauma. And I'm going to use, can I use that as, can I flip it around and somehow make it valuable that I have this, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Yes. And for me, yeah, go go ahead. ahead. No, no. I was just going to say the value comes in that, that the way I, the way it works for me is that if I can see it as maybe not a superpower, but an asset to help me connect with other, then I feel more confident. It, it like, it like feeds off each other. So I'm like, well, I may feel less than, but someone else out there has got to feel less than too. And at the, at the end of the day, I think we all feel pretty less than so, but it's acceptance. Exactly. <clears throat> that, that's great. I love that. Except and, and acceptance is the answer to so many of life's <laughs> problems. You know, the, the, the part of you, the the internal conflict whenever you're butting up against something else it, it usually has something to do with your needing to accept it 
Um, and I also love the idea. I mean, it's one thing to say acceptance and it's another thing to, to imagine yourself in a situation where you know what you need to feel is confidence. And so my approach, and this is very tied in, this is very um, connected to acting or it's very similar with acting. If I am, you know, the, the, the way that I thought you had to do before is act har- harder, <laughs> you know, like really, um, I would think like to summon confidence when I'm not feeling it means I just have to do something un- unnameable harder instead of do less and just let, let it be what it is. Um, but then you added another piece to it, which is connecting, which is also what you have to do in acting, you know, the real thought behind imagine everybody in the audience is naked is imagine that you have the same humanity as everybody else in the audience, you know, instead of seeing them as you gave in that great example of the, you're, they're the lion and you're the prey, you know, you have to think about that. No, we're all just the prey. You know, in any given situation, we could be either. And I have a really um, interesting story. So when I, about it, when I worked with, when I worked at the Nicholas Cage's company, we had meetings and one day the head of a studio, I don't know if she's still the head or whatever. I'll just, she was a big wig came in. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and um, she was a recovery and she's open about her struggles. She was a recovering alcoholic, but she was like the biggest wig. I woman wig I had ever met. And Mm -hmm. I was really like, Oh my gosh, she's coming into the office, the head of the studio. And I was, and one of Nick's assistants, because he didn't know better served sake with the sushi. What? instead of water oh for lunch which is odd but oh whatever people make mistakes whatever i'm not it was just odd but sake looks like water right so there was sake in a in a jug that looks like a water anyway i wasn't i wasn't in the yeah and i wasn't in the meeting i was outside but the meeting took place in a fishbowl type room so i could see yeah and i'm outside at my little desk probably doing nothing and um and all of a sudden, I see her stand up and run out of the room, spewing something out of her mouth. Oh, she was, she was petrified. She looked like me. She looked like I could relate in that moment. She looked, she looked like a human being. And I was like, oh, like this is a human being. And that gave me perspective. Look, I'm still totally nervous to meet important people and I get very nervous. But what it did was offer me an insight. I was like, oh, it was like a a moment of time where we were connected in our humanity. Then I helped her and I said, and she said, can I have some water, some real water probably? And I said, yes, yes. So I got her water and, and, and it worked out and it was fine. But what it did was it was just a snapshot. Okay, I love that. But but also just rewinding how <laughs> does a person think that sake is water? I mean, it it's light in color, but it doesn't look like water. It's kind of like the tiniest, yeah. And also 
wouldn't it have been stored in a sake bottle and didn't you have like no. a faucet i just there's i have many unanswered yeah, there's questions. a lot of questions but i think it was a high pressured meeting well maybe maybe not but for i my interpretation was it was like a high pressure situation and people weren't really paying attention to what they were eating and drinking they were more trying to hash oh, out some kind of deal and so it was like a mindless like Anyway, so what I'm saying is, and then takes a sip and realizes, what am I doing? So whether it was, I don't know what went down, but all I know was it was a rough meeting. And that assistant got in big trouble because, because. I bet. And if we could talk to if we could talk to him, if he remembers the story, I, you know, I'd be willing to bet that there's something about, there's some, several steps that led up to him doing it where you, where it's just. Right, because this is not like a co- common mistake. So something happened to him, right? Like maybe, maybe she upset him, and maybe he unconsciously acted out because we do that all the time. Actually, Aaron was just Aaron is really good at identifying the acting out and the acting in moments in himself and in other people. But he went, you know, as you know, they went skiing this weekend, and he. um you know, he has a very busy job. He really can't do anything else while he's working. He just has to be with his patients. And so I had to do all the, I mean, I offered to do and was happy to do all of the packing, like caught all the skis and everything was all ready. So the idea was that he was going to come home, just basically do whatever he needed to do for himself. And then everybody was going to get in the car and go. And, um, the place that they went was like two and a half, three hours away. And they didn't get there until 10 o'clock at night or something like that. And when they arrived at the hotel and they went to take everything out, he realized that he left the key to the Thule, the thing that goes on the top of the car that held all the skis. He, he left the key at home. And it's not just that he absentmindedly left the key. He had the keys in his hand and he was, he was taking my car cause I have the bigger car. And he said to himself, Gina needs these keys, even though I didn't cause I was using his car. Um, and he said, he described to me that as he was bringing it, them back into the house, something like in his body felt weird about it, but he didn't, stop and you know one so the he had to go to a locksmith in the middle of the night in a town in vermont that he'd never been to by himself at like 2 a.m to get the thing open which is a whole other thing but what he what his takeaway about why this happened is he said there was something it was so easy and nice that you just had everything packed and I don't, and he doesn't like to have everything easy and nice. He likes things to be hard and difficult or he defaults to things being hard and difficult. Sure. He feels more, you know, at ease in a way when things are difficult. So he found a way to, he found a way to impede on his good time to make something that would have been no work for him, a lot of work for him. And there may be a little strand in there of, and then feel blaming of me, like find a way to blame me because it's, I should have told him, right. Whatever. Oh my God. So we're always, not always, 
I try to look at these little mistakes that I make and I really try to find the bigger meaning to them Mm. because a lot of times there really is a bigger meaning to it, like a way that you're sabotaging something, right? I used to lose my wallet once a week. I used to leave my purse in every restaurant I ever went to. (laughs) What? Yes. Um, Yeah. I, I, I lost, I have lost my wallet like dozens of times. Oh my God. Dozens of times. And all, all in the period of time where I had zero dollars and zero cents. So I really couldn't afford to lose what, what little I had. Do you know the story about when I got um, robbed? No. In when I was living in Oakland, no, I was going to the BART station. It was really early in the morning, like 6 a.m. I forget why I was going so early. Um, and I was wearing a backpack. And while I was walking, I I had sort of like Aaron's describing this weird physical sensation. I had a physical sensation that I wasn't checking in with. And then when I got to the BART station, this woman said, your backpack is open. So some guy was so crafty and or knew that I was an easy mark because I was not being observant. While I was walking, snuck up behind me, opened my backpack and took my wallet out. Oh, my God. I got confidence. And the other thing is, then I flashed back to seeing that when I was walking, there was a man a block ahead of me who must have been his lookout or whatever who turned who did like this to me gave me like this cutesy little wave and I was like hey and that's what it was it he was he was like gotcha um now okay maybe, maybe there was nothing to be done about that situation but but what I take away from it is I had a feeling and I didn't yeah. Maybe it's better that I didn't because maybe that would have gone right. bad for me. <laughs> right. But still, but still, this idea of like just not not taking care of my not taking care of myself in very fundamental ways, like yes. not taking care of your money, is a way of really sabotaging like your basic well being. Not taking care of your health is a way of sabotaging your basic well being. And and I have done both of those things and and many other things to make myself. In a vo- so he his thing is to always make more work for himself, and my thing is to, you know, not prepare and and be like caught without without something essential that I need. Wow! Do you ever do? Do you have a thing like that that you do repeatedly? Yes, uh, yes. I say yes to things that don't serve me mm-hmm. because because I feel but that I don't a- deserve better. But what about a behavior? Oh, like a behavior? Yeah. I don't, that is a great question. Oh, I, I never put things back where they're supposed to be because I feel like uh, maybe I, I'm more, maybe I'm more of the make more work or I never put uh-huh. things in the same place twice. And so there's mm. something about so you lose. Does that mean you lose things a lot? 
means my 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 husband can never find anything and hates it. And I am trying maybe to make more work for him because I feel no, like No, it's that thing that you talked about before. You talked about you like feeling superior to him oh. and that he has to you like yeah. feeling like how your mom did with your dad yeah. and that she she had it all together and he was a mess. Yeah. Yeah. So like yeah, so like stuff like that. That's really fascinating. We're just we just, just keep animals. We're just animals doing things. Dude, that picture of Miles that you put. <laughs> Today on the podcast, we talk with Jen Deedee. Now, Jen Deedee is an entrepreneur in the true sense of the word. She acts. She writes, she produces, she has her own skincare business, and she's also wonderfully adept at connecting other human beings together. So people that might maybe not normally know each other, and she's like, you should know so-and-so, and you should know each other. And she's just really building a community. She's a huge proponent of um, women stepping up and stepping into their power. And she's just hugely uh, an uplifting spirit and a guy, sort of a guiding light in this world. So please enjoy our conversation with Jen Didi. So ladies, this is not the goal. This is not it. No, <laughs> no, no. Anyway, I, I can't. Yeah. Jen yeah. Didi, congratulations. You survived theater school. Thank you very much. Thank yes. you very much. I you survived that. theater school. I remember you to be a a a a, a star um a, in our class because <laughs> you have such an easy connectedness to you that comes across with you interpersonally, but it definitely comes across on stage. And I'm really curious to know, uh when you knew this about yourself and how it's been reflected to you over the years and what you make of it. Hmm. Thank you. That's what'd you say again? (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you, have you always known that like your talent is very great and that you're very natural at what you do? Is that, you know, from, from the first time you acted, did you know that? I knew that something happened like, okay, so I I was little, I was totally the story of like, I was super shy and my mom spoke for me and that was totally me. I was claustrophobic. I had issues everywhere. I had my parents like stop the car and let me get out and like run in the field because I couldn't stay in the car. So it's like a highly emotional, what I would think of now. And I look back, probably needed more help in those areas. But Mm -hmm. I think I was just such an empath. Like I was such a, like a, I sucked up everything around me. And because I was little, the youngest of my family, I took in all the stuff, right? And I just was the, like, if there's conflict, I would just like, it would just be sitting in my body. I didn't know then how to get rid of it, but it would, it would manifest in uh, claustrophobia when I think about it. So going back to my claustrophobia as a very young child, it wasn't until I was like, my mom is, my mom is a dancer and she had her own dance company and like, really blood, sweat and tears, her own business. Like our family built a business with her, all of that. And I found my outlet through dance. So I was like, so I knew there was like a natural connection through expressing my body with these emotions that I didn't quite understand. And I did, like I was dancing all the time, but not in front of people. And then when I was in middle school, 
you know, drama class in like eighth grade, which is, oh my gosh, you guys, um, I'll never forget this. So we had to do an improv, a dramatic improv of something sort of terrible that happened. So my girlfriend and I, (laughs) it's not funny. We relived the Challenger disaster as if we were watching it and had like, but like we were so into it, like we were we were sobbing and screaming, and like it was just <laughs> my friend Tammy who sing, who sings, and I could never sing. Anyway, we laughed so hard at that, but like actually, that acting teacher and that class and like that connection to sort of how easy it was for me to put my imagine if you know and pretend that 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 mm-hmm. I knew someone in the Challenger was like. It was weird. It like unlocked this thing for me. So while crazy and ridiculously dramatic we were at this this age, I then got in the school play and my parents were like in the audience, like, oh gosh, I hope she doesn't run off, you know? Because I mean, I had my little group of friends and stuff and I wasn't like, you know, I I, I was social, but I ha- I just, I just... I didn't want everybody to look at me until I was ready for them to look at me, you know, it's like, and yeah. then they can look, you know? Um, so I did that play and that's where I was walking around. Like I was called high style heist and we, and I was like the owner of the agency. And uh, I just remember being like, Oh my gosh, this feels so good. Like this just feels right. And it was something internal more than um, people watching me. Right. It was more because I didn't love the people watching me thing still, but I felt brave. And I was like, oh, here's and then it was like then I went into the races. I was off to the races, went into speech team, total became like a big time speech team gal in the state of Illinois, you know, which speech team if anybody knows forensics. Do you guys know forensics? Yes. A lot of people on our show I don't even know what forensics means. <laughs> That's <what they> mean. <laughs> I only know because of true crime and it means different things in different areas, but like, but a lot of people that we have on this, on this um, podcast start in speech team and, and have extolled the amazing things that came out of their career in, on the speech and forensics team. So you're not alone in that. Oh, a hundred percent. Was it yeah. monologues? Did you do monologues? Okay, so it was we okay, you guys, it was the best training ever. Really, I could have just done that and been fine. But <laughs> but you don't want to dish that because it you become sort of a weird robot. But um so okay, so it's like 12 events and there's radio and there's something for everybody. There's something for like the Uber Goober smart kids, there's something for everybody. Back then it was like if you did like oratory speaking or you did actual debate or something like, you know, you have these big files you carry around. And then they had like five categories for basically acting. So it was like dramatic duet acting. You'd have your partner, you'd have comedic duet acting. And then you'd have a thing called dramatic interpretation. And you'd play like seven, eight, 12 characters. And you'd have this like vocal, you'd have this spot. And so like, if I was like an old lady, like I'd go down like this and I'd be, but mom, and I'd go up here and like, and so you'd play these different people with these different voices like touch of the poet, by the way, doing that, you know? Wow. So weirdly, you actually, for me, I loved it. Like, cause I'm such a character actor, like embodied all these different, I, you know, of course we're playing like 80 when we're 16, but it right. really, you know, kind of gave me such a skill set for script analysis and reading a script and who's the heart of the story? Who's the main character in the, you know what I mean? Just, it just gave me this overall. So, and I got very blessed that the high school I went to didn't have the best like theater program, but their speech team was like everything. So 
you know, I just learned so much from like my mentor there who became like one of my best friends. She was only in her twenties at the time. And then she became such a mentor for me, like in life. Like I, I look back now, still me and her talk about it. And I'm like, Oh my God, you saw what I was struggling with, with my family. You saw, you know I mean? You saw everything. And I don't know what I would have done without her. Uh, I really don't because I don't know how I would have interpreted how well I did versus what was just like doing well at like almost a team, like almost like a sport rather than I'm going to be an actor or something. You know what I mean? It was like that kind of thing. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I, I have to say, like, it, it sounds like an amazing training. I wish I had done that. I wish someone had said, hey, try out this, because it sounds like it, while it was, uh, uh, sounds like it was hard and stressful at times, it also doesn't sound like it was that thing of, like, the cast list goes up at school, and then the popular girl gets, it sounds like there, like you said, there's a place no, for everyone. there aren't a lot of popular girls. Like, it's like, you have, what, what was nice for me is, I was definitely, like, a popular girl, meaning I wasn't unpopular, but I wasn't like in the the cheerleading kind of gals, but we all had our own groups. And what was nice is I kind of got to float between different groups that made sense for me. So I had my girls from like middle school and then I had this group and I had my little, like when I went through my party phases in high school, like I had them, I had them, <laughs> you know? And then I was like, screw speech team, you know? Um, but, <laughs> but I have to say what speech team did is it made me an adult adult in a good way fast. Like it taught me how to like talk to adults and introduce myself. And that's when I named myself Jen instead of Jennifer. <laughs> like, really breaking also... out, really breaking out there. <laughs> I was like, I am Jen Didi, not Jennifer Didi. <laughs> like, and I would get pissed. I was like, it's Jen. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. So wait, so you refer to yourself as a character actor. And the second you said that, I think yes, you're you're that too. I mean, it's it's uh, some people only have the choice of being a character actor. I think you have the choice of doing both. But have you been cast as a lot of characters? Because for those of you who don't know what Jen looks like, she's so beautiful. She's blonde and has gorgeous blue eyes. And I imagine that people are not keen necessarily to cast you in a character. <laughs> well, what Hollywood determines is a character. Yes. Um, you know, yes, I think when I was younger coming out to LA in my 20s, I realized what I was presenting didn't match up with what people thought of me. So I kind of became this like, I'm silly and cute and blonde and ha, you know, like I can't compete with the Baywatch girls and I'm not perfect like that. I'm in this unique, unique category, which what does that even mean? Like I had a uh, I don't even know. Like, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was listening to everybody else, not myself. And I think I realized like one time this agent said to me, you are a character actress with leading lady looks. Like you can go into the leading lady category, Jen, but you know, you do accents and you do this and you actually enjoy all that stuff so much and you can do it, you know? And so I was like, where does that put me? You know, like, hello, Meryl Streep. Like, can we just do that then? Right. right? Like, right. can we just do that? Right. Um, or just so many other, you know, Kate Blanchett, like these actresses I started to look at as I got older, like, well, I, well, I can I go in that category? They seem like a chameleon that can do several things and yet they're still their essence. And that's what I started to learn. It's like your essence that you're actually selling mm -hmm. um, and branding. But that's really hard. 
You know, they want, you know, they want you to be in that box. And while I can put myself in a little sitcom box, it just always felt so claustrophobic. I just felt like, ah, that doesn't feel just the only box I want to put myself in. But I tried and I did. Um, But when she said that to me, it became this like long journey of like every single thing that I chose to work on. Like if I was in my amazing acting class and studio that I taught at quite, you know, later, I love them. I brought in like what you would call a character, you know, like, like something really meaty and juicy. It was never somebody, you know, it wasn't the straight man. It wasn't this, the woman who just like you bounced off me. I was Lucille Ball of it all or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm a character actor. Like I am a character actor. That's what I am. I play characters. And then it just got me mad at like, why do we have to, you know, just as the way it's set up, right? It's a system that's set up like you, you go in this box or you go in this box and maybe there's a third box, but there are no other boxes. And so I just had such a hard time going, okay, well, I'll go, I'll be a redhead. I thought it would put me more in the comedic box. It put me more in a sexual box. (laughs) And I was out for like every whore, everything. Like, I was just like, what? Like, so it was this long game of changing myself and changing myself to fit in these boxes. And then finally I was like, no, I am not. Like I can put a wig on. I could do this. I could do that. And I just started claiming the fact that if you look at my, you know, the work I've done through the years and as I've put together this work, this, you know, a reel or whatever, I look at it and they're all different characters, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was, a, and it's a joy to play sometimes that person that isn't like the mafioso wife or something, you know, like mm-hmm. I love that too. And that's usually TV, you know, that's usually TV mm-hmm. land, you know, it's like not a whole lot of, of option there with like guest starring and things like that. But, um, but yeah, I actually think Gina, that's a great question because I, I don't feel, I, I, I don't feel like I'm beautiful enough for Hollywood to be in that category. And yet I am so unapologetically okay with like my beauty and understanding it, but I don't really care anymore if you don't understand it. Like I'm here to like, come like paint a picture with you and here's my picture. Do you want to play? Like, here's, here's what my thoughts are. And when I started getting into that place, better representation came along, better things came along because I was like, this is, this is what I have. I'm excited to show you what I came up with in my drawing. I'm saying drawing, but you know, like this is the character I'm thinking of. Instead of like just that whole thing of, oh, I hope I could be what they want. I hope I could be what they want, you know? And I think that that thing. comes through, right? That so shines through when we take ownership of who we are and what what we want to build together with somebody. It shines through and people want to work with us more, which is so, so. Absolutely, Jen. Yeah. Versus trying to be what people want us to be. And nobody wants to work with that. <laughs> it's yeah, like, that's not yeah. that's not attractive and yet we think that that's no. so it's just the way we go about doing it and it sounds like you've arrived at a place now or are still evolving and arriving but at taking yeah. total ownership of your your being and your package and that's so attractive to me you know that is just so attractive this is such a theme by the way in our podcast people who have one view of themselves and who discover maybe in theater school, maybe right after that, that is not the view that other people have of them. And Mm -hmm. for some people, 
that's okay because maybe they they discover that other people thought more highly of them than they thought of themselves. But for a lot of us, it's no, people don't think as highly of you or don't see you as having these gifts that you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. thought you had. And that's a hard thing about your industry, about Hollywood is it being so much about your image. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I think you just get like, especially when I got into my 30s and mid 30s and just like started digging in. And I started actually teaching and coaching other actors through the studio, Warner Laughlin Studios, and I got to be on the other side of it. And what I realized is, like, we're not teaching people how to act. And the only way I could do it is because I really believe in this very healthy way and a way she works. And it really lit me up and different than theater school. Warner, it's a woman, she basically just collected all these really talented people. We all took class together. And then as her studio grew, she was like, do you guys want to teach? I want working actors, directors, people. I want you off on set, coming back and teaching, you know? So it was this very alive feeling of like, I know what you guys are going through because I was just on set shaking in my boots and here's how you can deal with that. You know what I mean? It was this whole, this whole, um, bring your experience in to give it back. Mm -hmm. And, um, or is I going with that? No, yeah. you were just, you were basically what we were saying is that like the, 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 the thing that you're trying to teach people is not about acting. Yes. It's about yes. image. And, and that comes from inside, I think. Yes. And so the thing that I started to learn with, especially uh, young actors or, or people that are new to the industry or whatever it is that like, I, I can't teach you that you can learn Warner's technique. It is awesome. It's going to help you so much, like get rid of the nerves. It's going to help you to understand your imagination and pretend, play pretend and go all out. However, if you don't understand your instrument and yourself and your self-worth, which has nothing to do with an acting class, that's therapy, that's somewhere else. Okay. That does not, now what you could be, acting class could be cathartic. Good. That's awesome. But our classes is about, you know, go do that somewhere else and come back here because I can't, no one can teach you that. So if you blossom, you are willing to blossom. You are willing to be open and, and take in the other classmates and take in each other. Like, right? Because you are you're learning from all 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 of it. And I think when you are uh young or just the way we are as humans, you know, it's very much like us, like the ego comes first. And as we start to open up and really listen to each other, that's where it comes in, right? That's where you learn. And as a young actor, you just think everybody's looking at you all the time. And instead of really diving in and like, no one's looking at you. They're thinking about themselves, like really do the work. Cause I think when you start to get like, what is meaningful about this? Like, you know, people talk about that in my other business and all sorts of things. Like, what's your why? 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 What do you, what's your why? You know, Bill, Bill Gates, what's your why? Why are you doing this? Um, why am I an actor? Why am I doing? Do I need people to just love me? Did I get abused as a kid? No. Okay. Why do I do this? Why do I put myself through this? You know? So it really made me see other people that I saw. And quite frankly, I could see they're probably, this is probably not going to be their career. Um, And I think the only reason I have hung in there with this as a career is because I I had to step outside the box of who Hollywood saw me as and see if I had any other talents in other areas to use my artistry in a way that felt meaningful, really meaningful. That for me is the ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. It's like, 
and we talk a lot about this on the podcast of like developing talents outside of acting, even staying in the entertainment industry or not, but like, or not. Yeah. What other things can I add to my life to make it meaningful? And therefore it becomes less meaningful what people see when they look at me or my, and I'm just, I'm just busier thinking about how I can build my other world up versus do you like me? Can you pick me? Will you love me? That game. Yes. So, you know, yes. Um, yes. but I have a question about, about when, when you were uh, in terms of the theater school, like, did you apply to other schools, Jen Beattie? Did you, that's my question. I want to know how you ended up at DePaul. Okay. So I, you know, fourth year, uh, graduating speech team um in high school and my my other uh coach hilarious dude i mean we used to go to the racetrack together and stuff like as a kid my parents would be like yeah you go to the racetrack with mr drace would be smoking he'd take me like he like i'm gonna take a kid we're gonna go do this voiceover thing it's a real gig i got money for you i mean he was hysterical but i trusted him for some reason implicitly he was a good man and he was like you need you need to go to depaul theater school i feel like that's your school so he really helped me and i was like Okay. And then I looked at North Carolina School of the Arts, um, Northwestern, and I applied to a couple of them, but I really was, once he said that, I was like, that makes sense. I could be sort of close to home, but I, my parents are in the suburbs. I can live in the city. Um, I love the idea of being in a very active city and like, like my friends all, you know, the, most of them went to like, you know, sort of farm town and went to school. And I was like, oh my God, I I couldn't do that. I didn't want anything to do with the sorority thing. Now I wish. I actually think it's awesome. I, I, I totally get it. But I was super judgy of like, oh, I don't need that. I don't need this. But I knew actually I really did want a conservatory. I knew that for mm-hmm. sure. And I wanted a four-year thing that because I wanted to go to college, you know, technically. Yeah, right, <laughs> um, right. So I went and, and auditioned and I remember Judy, I think Judy Greer was at my audition. She was adorable and like had this like crazy curly hair on her head yes. and she was like in this dancer outfit and I was like in my penny loafers and like jeans. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. And I was like, I, I don't fit in here. Like I don't wear all black. I don't look like an artist because I didn't. I didn't really, you know, I was just. I wasn't that. I was much more like, mm-hmm. um, and, but I do remember doing the audition and it went really well. And, um, I, I just had a good vibe about it. And then when I did, um, North Carolina school, of the arts, my best friend, Tammy, who we did the eighth grade thing. I'm still mad at her today for this. Okay. The woman can sing like an angel. And I said, I have to sing something. What should I sing? She goes, sing, um, uh, climb every mountain. <laughs> <laughs> it's the hardest song ever. And then she sang it for me so I could repeat it. And I did you guys. And it was oh, wow. horrific. I'm like, oh, tone wow. deaf. I'm tone deaf basically. All right. You now, the tone deaf mountain. <laughs> you really oh I did my Shakespeare. I did my whatever. And then I sang it and they were like, Okay. Thank you so much. Absolutely not. No. And I was like, oh. oh, it was terrible. I'm so mad at her. But anyway, it 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 all it all worked out, and I um, and I got into DePaul. So yeah. So when you arrived and it's day one, and you're taking your first class. How does the experience? I mean, because a lot of people say. Yeah, they'd done acting in high school, maybe even junior high, but it had nothing to do with what the actual acting 
classes were like at the theater school. A couple people who had been in like in professional children's theater companies, they were not surprised by it. But were you surprised by what the actual work of the acting classes was as compared to your previous experience? Oh, yeah. I was like, um, I'm going backwards, people. Where are my scripts? You know, like, because I was such a little machine with speech team and learning things. And that was unusual for sure to have that kind of experience, but not everywhere. But like for, for I, I noticed that not everybody had that. Like you just come in with like what you think your little world is and it's so small, you know, but um, oh my gosh, I was so out, a fish out of water. Like I felt so on the outside looking in. I didn't get it. I was like, why are we just improving for a year? Like why, you know what I mean? Like I, and we did. And now I look at it and it's, I, I think it was one of the most brilliant things that could have uh, been like offered to me in the way of like strip away all your stuff, take away all the things. And I get it. Like, I get it. I get that. I don't love all aspects of the process of theater schools in general, because I think they're so archaic in some ways and they need to move forward. And, and that could be kind of damaging at this point. However, I, for me, I know that I was just resistant because I was terrified. I was like, what do I do? I can't, I don't know what this improv thing is, you know? Also, I can't sing, you know, like there was just like all the things Mm -hmm. in your head of like what you can't do. And this girl's like running around doing her thing, twirling about, you know, and I was just like, I just wasn't open that like that yet. I was like that at my house or like with people I knew, like I said, it was kind of that thing. But yeah, I was like really weirded out that first year. Really, really. um, I loved the we had that big theater that maybe you could be in, you know, and we helped the, the gosh, we were the. Crew. We were like the back, we were the tech for the other shows and yep. stuff. So, I mean, all of that was, that was kind of cool. Like, oh, we're going to someday go there, you know? <laughs> um, and I had a teacher that was really, really, really crazy, crazy. And I didn't get the brunt of it, but a lot of other people did. And I just knew it was wrong and it felt awful. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of, kind of like zoomed around it. Like, okay, I'm not going to be the person that he goes off on, you know? So that was, so all of that was really interesting. Cause in, you know, I don't know. I, I, I had my mom, my mom had a team of women and when I had auditioned for my mom to be a part of her dance team and stuff, my mom was like, let's go, you know, I'm treat you like everybody else. So there were, she was kind of tough and things like that. And so I kind of grew up with like, um, just go do it, figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but this was, not that. We've talked about the way that the the way that it became about the acting teacher's personality. Yeah. And and maybe you could call it their style, but it was really more like the cult of that person. Yeah. That you either drank the Kool-Aid or not. And I definitely both drank the Kool-Aid and knew that my acting teacher was abusive. Right, right, right. I and I, I think yeah. I had I had Rick. And so oh, with yeah. me, with, with Rick. Rick, I I just felt he was completely indifferent to me. And to be honest, I, I've never I don't think I've shared this, but one time we were doing space objects and he whispered in my ear, You should quit school and go travel the world. <laughs> He was wow. probably like high or something. He's like, I, yeah, anyway, probably. so, so I, I wasn't in either of your sections, but I remember it's a similar thing of like, I remember wishing that I was either the favorite or the butt, but not in that weird middle land where you're just kind of, 
Like, who's I that? felt like I was a non-existent person to his class. Like, I didn't feel, I, I didn't. And then I got warned that year from him. Oh. And he, like, I, now I, I totally get it now. I look back, I was like, oh, he's doing this game. We're like, you know, we're all part of this to see what we do and how we react. And he was right, actually. At the end of the day, I, because he wasn't, he wasn't awful to me. Uh, he just was sort of, yeah, just like, just kind of nothing to me. And then I realized that was his way, you know, that was his tactic with me. So then when I got my first year, I got a warning. I was just like, oh, what, what do you mean? And he, and he was like, well, Jen, he's like, if you didn't look the way you do, I don't think you have much to offer. He's like, basically you, you know, you like, what do you have to offer? You know, um, I mean, you're good looking, you know? And so then I was like, and I just let him have it. I was like, I was like, that's bullshit. And I was just like, I was like, if I was, if I was, you know, to look totally different to you, whatever your thing of beauty is like, and I had no idea at that time what any of this like feels like to me now, but I was just like, you know, if I was 600 pounds and I was this or that, it wouldn't matter because I have something to give and I know exactly what that is. And fuck you. And like all this whole thing. You so did, you did that, huh? Oh yeah. Oh Good yeah. Cause you. he lit my fire. Like he knew that he probably knew it was in there, you know, that it, it, it is, it is. There's a fighter in me that's like, Bleh. and he lit it up and I was like, he goes, okay. He goes, fine. Then I want you to go first in every one of my classes. And he was right. I went last in every single class because I wanted to be perfect. Oh, and volunteering. Yeah. To go. Oh, yes. like, yeah. So yeah, I remember that. That last semester, uh, whatever, spring to the end of the year when, when the warnings came out, I went first in every class and I did totally blossom. Like he was right. Like he was, because I was overthinking it and I was trying to be right and I was trying to be perfect. And I think he saw that. And in a way, um, I also weirdly saw that he would, he, like I saw the humanity in him for sure that like there was stuff going on there that like has nothing to do with me. I, I had been, I don't know, maybe a little more mature coming into it. I don't know what other people felt, but I felt that some people may not have had uh, any experience with that type of thing. And it would be very devastating. What I remember you know, we about you too, kids. Jen is, yeah. But what I remember about you, Jen, is that you like had a sort of timeless, like you, you seemed ahead of your time to me, like a uh, more mature and more, um, yeah, classic. Like you, you had, you were able to, like Gina said at the beginning, able to move within roles and within um, classes and things with some ease. That whether mm -hmm. that was pretend or not, I, I know, I don't know, but it, but it, it, it definitely came across as like you were beyond your years to me. And um, I think it came out in your acting as well. And mm -hmm. I've said this before to you, but, but you did a scene where you did the apartment with Eric Slater um, yes. and, and you, you, it was you and Eric. Right. And it was as if yeah. I was I like, Oh, him. this is what acting is. Like I, I didn't understand mm. what acting <laughs> was until seriously, until I saw you, you two or and there was other people too but like I remember that scene and being like oh she's just really it, um graceful and it seemed easy I think it mm. became mm. Easy. and I know it wasn't easy but it it appeared that way which to me is a mark of a good actor right it's like sort of like is that the know. is that the scene where you said it's like I'm ruined or something <laughs> there was remember this we had for 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 I don't think I, I don't know 
several times you did the scene and you kept saying it's like a maroon or something. Yeah, because it was like, like was it was it, was like it Don Ilka zero zero one? It was something. Yes, was it Don Ilka who said? is that word you're saying? And we were like, oh no, it's maroon. Don Ilko. I loved him. He got it. I loved him so much. He totally gave me so much shit, but I'd be like, I don't know. But I mean, it. yes, that was exactly it. That was that exactly it. That scene was glorious. I, it, it oh, was, yeah. That's still one of my favorites. That was, that was fun. I, I think Jen, you know, now that kind of, I do think there is an ease that I, that I don't quite understand that I do think is part of the part of the innate talent, right? Not that you, you uh, people may not know they even have that and then they are able to nurture it and grow it. Or some people may never get into an opportunity to do that. Right. So I think at the end of the day, actually, I do think that theater school did nurture in that in me and allow that to pull out. And I think through each teacher, whether we totally jived or not, I think at the end of the day, by my senior year, uh, Asselhoff said this to me and I think it was confusing and also dead on. He was like, I think I've learned how to work with you. When I leave you alone, you fly. And when I try to mess with you, you get in your, not just in your head, but you just, it just all falls apart. So I'm like, well, wait, can, can I take a note? Like, what does that mean? You know, but I, but as I grew up and I learned, like, I do have great instincts, follow them first, be passionate about them listen, take in with directors and whatnot, right? And then make it better. Like a good actor usually can make a note better, right? But but if you make, then I think I would take the note and try to do exactly the note. And then I learned like, oh, how does that fit, fit me? Like, how does, how do I take that note into my gen language and my, my language for this character? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's mm-hmm. what theater school was like very literal about taking a note, exactly take the note, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I guess that's what he meant later on. But I feel like... Uh, I guess the ease would probably go away if I did, if I had, you know, to, if I was pleasing too much or trying to show them that I'm taking the note, you know, which you do a lot in theater school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so one of the things that I was going to mention about you, one of my lasting memories of you is when we were getting ready for um, showcase. And I remember you, I forget what we were talking about, but you, you, you looked at me and you said, Little Miss Health Nut is going out the door. Like you were so excited to be going to LA and it was going to be this big, like fun celebration for you. (laughs) And the reason I think that that sticks out is because yes, you, you were very, uh, it doesn't surprise me that you felt like you were trying to do everything perfectly. Cause I think I, I can, I could see that in you be little Miss Perfect, but it's a weird thing in acting because you do have to have somewhat of a controlling nature in in, ter- in terms of like just steering your own ship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just seems to be difficult to know that really fine line between being in control and being in your head mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as an actor. How did you figure that out? When did you figure it out? And how did you figure out how to navigate that line? You know, I think when I came to LA, you know, shortly after theater school, I, I was in Chicago for a couple of years and got my SAG card, got my equity card and got confidence with all that. And then 
I'm, I came here and, and when, and when an agent was like, you got to meet this coach, this acting coach. And I was like, "Mm, we don't do that. Like Chicago, we just work, like send me to a play, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I'm going to hire this is so fancy and ridiculous. And anyway, I did (laughs) because I was like, you, you must coach with her. So what I understand now truly is that you do get these very small amount of, of really big opportunities when you're younger. And if you're not ready for them, you're, that may be it for those types of things. So like, I, I do understand now from that perspective. So I went into her and this is Warner who I met and I just was like, I fell in love and I fell in love with her because number one, she was just like this gem of love that like in this town is very difficult to find. And she just embraced me. It was like, and then she just listened to me and we did this sitcom and she worked with what my talents were. She wasn't molding me. She didn't tell me how to do it, but she ever so slightly kind of showed me um, the rhythm of sitcom. And I started thinking, oh, that's just like Shakespeare. That's just like, you know, and I could relate it that way of like, like you have to do every word of Shakespeare. It's like, you have to do every word of sitcom, you, you know? And so like, I would go like, okay, so the rhythm I know about this, I put into that as opposed to me trying to be like, and pause. And now the joke, you know? So how do I bring that naturalness in with this like this, this absolute style, you know, and that's where the plays and stuff did come in handy because everything you have to understand of tone and style, you have to understand tone and style first to control the overall picture and then be able to let it like, let yourself prepare and fly within it. Mm -hmm. So that it became super. So Warner, her way she worked and her technique, I just can't say enough about because I've never gone to any other acting teacher here ever because I was like, I fell into such good hands. And I knew one thing, if you don't, if you're not abused and the teacher doesn't think they're God and the technique is incredible, stay there because she wanted us out working. And that was the goal. Always like get out working, get out working, come back. This is like your, your exercise room, right? This is your, your gym. So what I learned in her technique was all imagination based. It was all imagination. So it wasn't using any of my, my personal experiences. And I felt so bored with my personal experiences. The stuff that was really not things I wanted to look at, my your whole system will just naturally shut down, right? Like you just your your brain goes, nope, not going there. So you become numb. And then the things that were happening in my life, it was just not really it didn't it didn't, wouldn't equate, right? So I'd be forcing so much. And when you get scripts for television and film, you have got to be ready like you're on set tomorrow. Like you've got to have that emotion right there. There's no like, I got to look at a fan and let it tear up. You got to go, right? And you got to come in and they say like, oh, use the script, but they want you to be completely ready. And they want to see the finished product truly, even though they're, they they act like they want to see the work in progress. So you play the game of the work in progress, but you they want, to, they want you to be completely ready. So with Warner, I just started going, oh, you don't get a whole script for these film and television things. And how do I become more intimate? And I started to to take all the things I learned, but with with that, I could go, well, there she worked with the left and right side of the brain, right? So the way psychology works, and she would be like, you know, we're gonna work, we're gonna first work in the left side of the brain, analytical. We're gonna do behavior, we're gonna break down the script a bit, and then we're gonna go all the way over here, and then we're gonna imagine how this person grew up. And you're literally gonna talk out loud, eyes closed, doing these improvs where you're like tricking your brain into thinking that these emotions are yours, even though you know they're not. So anyway, it all just was like, I was like, oh, this is amazing because I was, you know, in theater school, it's great. You get to pick and choose and whatever. But like, then I didn't know how I worked. Yes. And I I just want to say like, you sound, it sounds like 
Warner was able to help you transition from the stage to film and TV. hundred percent. Which and that was the goal. Huge yeah. schism that most yes. of us, at least me, when I graduated and I got on set, I was like, I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> and I don't, what am I doing? I guess I'll just go drink. You know what I mean? Like that's how, but it sounds like yes. she was able to help you bridge that gap. So you were able to transition into working as a television and film actor a lot more smoothly than a lot of people, because I I didn't know. Well, have any of that. I, I I and I and I went to class, man. I finally did. You know, a year in, I, I went to class, and when I went to that class, I looked at I'm like, nobody's acting in here. There are no strings, and it wasn't like everybody was brilliant, but they were pretty good. And that class, guys, oh my gosh, this is like this posse I have today. Just they were like. I think of it as my graduate program because it was like, these people are out there right now. Some people are uber goober famous. Some people are, are in the middle of it all. Some people are a lot like me who are like, okay, they've been working all this time and now they're ready to go. Okay. Now I'm going to be producing these things. I'm doing it. And we've all championed each other and been there for each other. And I was just so blessed to have, they're like my family friends now, you know what I mean? And like truly know me and I can call them and be like, this is terrible. My twenties just like ripped up because an agent dropped me, you know, these things are so important then, you know, and those people that go through that with you is huge. And Warner was that she, I literally said, I have to get to the transition. And I thought it was just being loud or quiet. (laughs) And it was like her work allowed me to build my characters internally so easily because our imagine and remember one time she goes close your eyes now imagine your character like on the ferris wheel and it's it was a thing i was talking about in the monologue and i did it uh or i didn't do it i i closed my eyes and i go i see black i have no imagination i don't i can't i don't have an imagination like i have to do something in my life and she's like okay breathe again you know but it, and then, and then all of a sudden i had the i had it in my head i saw it i felt it i said it out loud and then she goes great do the monologue again and it was all there all alive as if you know the, a real memory right a real fake memory because the truth is we've all felt we've we all know all the emotions i know pain i know it's misery suffering happy sad we all know all of them now to what level is the cool thing about diving into a character that i've never experienced that level of pain i can pretend I don't have to do the drugs. I can pretend. I can do research. I can do tons of research. I can watch people who have done them, right? So it just made me feel like that's how you do this for a long time and be a healthy person. Because like all the actors I love, they'd have these insane stories and being in a mental asylum and all that. And I'm just like, I want a family. I want kids. I want a life. <laughs> I, want, I want a checking <laughs> account. I want a checking account and the lights to stay on. Like... My husband and I would often say, like, he's always like, God, you should have just slept with the writer and directors and stuff. And like, I should have just done this. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> we would have no life. Yeah. Like, and by the way, you're promised nothing. All that stuff is, unless it's true, which a lot of people do end up together that are in the same industry like we are. But it it's, it goes away unless it's real. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So in looking at your website, uh, you have so much going on. (laughs) You have your fingers in about every pot I can imagine. Um, I have a sense now after talking to you that this was a very deliberate move that you made early on because you didn't want to be put into a box that meant that everybody would just be telling you what you were going to do. You wanted to have ownership over it yourself. But how did you start branching out into producing and writing and all of the multimedia things you're doing? Um, Well, out of frustration. So I was in acting class and it was like a million other people like, I've done so many scenes. I'm now teaching. I loved it. And it gave me such a, I I resisted 
so long. I was like, I don't know what you do when you teach. I, I, I sort of equated it to what I thought teachers were, even though Warner wasn't that like bitter and I'm not going to act. And my, and I, while that wasn't, that wasn't the case. I had that idea. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just had that, like, you're going to, if, those who can't do teach, like all these stupid things, it's just stupid, but, but we have those in our head. Um, but wait, going back to what, what was I saying? What were you saying? <laughs> I was saying you, you, you oh, decided that into so- the stuff. Yeah. So I, I was frustrated and I started to write and I just one day had this urge to do it. And, you know, Jen, Jen and I talked about this before, like, you know, like Northwestern grads, which I had one of my dearest friends is a Northwestern grad and they're everywhere. And they seem to just have the confidence to just do everything all the time. Like, they're just like, I'm writing and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Whereas DePaul was very, for me, acting focused, you know, and there isn't this like, and for good or bad, I know I was supposed to be at DePaul just was like, it was a better fit for me for sure. But like, I admired that. Like, I was like, I don't, how do you think you can just write? And they were right. There was something different about that. So I kind of followed a couple of their leads and, and and they're like, well, write something then. And I was like, okay. So I was inspired actually back home in Chicago about uh, something. And I wrote a little scene and I did it in class and I didn't tell anybody it was mine until it was like, it's great. You know? And then somebody's like, what, who wrote it? And I was like me, you know? And then I got a lot of confidence and I just started writing. So I, that was the beginning of, of writing and understanding that I have other ways to express my, my uh, stories and like what I want to say. And they were always female driven. They were always around women and always around like our stories and, and mothers and daughters and sisters and things that like I have in my, my life. And that I want to see all the time. And I don't, right? We don't see it as much. So um, I then did a little uh, project. We did an improv in class. And from that improv, like three of my other friends were like, we should make a movie around that. So we did an improv dramatic movie that we produced for like (laughs) $10,000. And we took it very seriously. And like, you know, we met constantly and we were involved for like two years and we filmed in San Francisco. And, but I learned basically film school, right? I just like went to film school again, same friends to this day. Um, my friend Aaron Cardillo, she's amazing. My friend Michael Weiner, he's like, he's he's a uh, uh, composer and and writer, and he works on Broadway. And all these people just kind of gravitated, and we did this thing, and we all gr- kind of. I was like, oh, I love I love putting the pieces together. I love like jumping in front of the camera, going behind the camera, like and being the producer one day, and everybody else got to be the actors, right? It really was like this little film school experience. And actually, I got some great footage out of it. So I just had that like bug of like, how do I do more of this? And then I just started and I kept going more into the writing. And at this point, guys, I was like still doing like I was back doing theater a lot to like quench my theater stuff here in L.A. with like a pretty good couple of companies, mainly one. And I will say, I just started thinking, how do I have the energy to do the other stuff? So I just came to this place where like most theater in L.A. is free. And I just got really like people will take from you if they can. And I kept giving and people kept taking. So that's on me. And I had to just go, what do I want for the long game? And when I thought about continually doing these theater jobs, they felt like they were just feeding me and helping other people. But Mm. it wasn't the long game. And so the long game would be write the script and put it out there, get it filmed. You'll have it there. You know, you'll be able to employ a lot of people. It became, again, it became coming out of myself and into into the story, into having people I love come around and make the stories with me. That's the vision I kept like craving and wanting. So I was just getting really bitter and mad. And I just said, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take this leap of like 
anything that feels awful, I'm going to say no to any audition that doesn't feel like it lines up with me. I'm going to say no to, I'm not going to do the free stuff. And I'm going to, unless it's like a, you know, obvious yes. Cause there's so many free things you do and they're wonderful, but I just like committing to three months of my life. Right. And then, and then my, my day job was teaching and then I'm doing my own acting and like, it just was so much. So I stopped that and all the space came in for me to start thinking in that, those terms. And so I did, I started creating and writing and I found bit, you know, partners and we wrote scripts and sitcoms and this and that, and, you know, promising things and not so promising things and got in with people to read it. And then I learned the big lesson of who your partners should be and not should be because some people just shit on you and other people use you and other people love you, you know? (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. I found my people. Then I found my people, right? My friend Nikki and I uh, started writing something and then uh, you know, we developed our, our blog through that. And really at the end of the day, which goes back to what you said, I found this whole like express yourself in many areas because it's all coming from my gifts. Okay. So my talent in acting looks very similar to my talent as a writer. And it looks very mm-hmm. similar, no matter if I'm paid or not, it looks exactly the same. You know, like my voice is actually more honest in a way, in a different way than writing. That it's like harder because you're you, you just I don't know it's just different to me. I can't just escape. I'm I'm the thing, right? But like, and then my voice as a producer is very similar to how I collaborate as an actor. How I want to collaborate. How I envision like the most beautiful, awesome set to be on because I've been on enough sets to go like this set is really toxic, mm-hmm. right? And instead of just being like, there's so many times I just want to be like. This business is so awful. It is, it is on so many levels. And I'm not going to apologize for that. It is awful. And it treats many people awful. But I would, but there was this little fight in me that was like, but I love the art of what I do. I love the craft. I love the stuff. I love the storytelling. So how do I do that within this and try to commercialize stuff to get paid? And it took me a while to step back. And like reassemble, which is scary, right? Because if you're not on the treadmill of like, go get your headshots again and go do this again and go do that again, right? you think you're doing something. But the truth is I was just doing this. Nobody was seeing me anymore. You know, a couple theaters, bigger theaters, great. Like theater is beautiful. You, you, you reach levels like this with that as well. And, you know, you can't really live on that. Um, so I thought, okay, so I'm not living on this consistently anyway. Let's take away all that BS. Mm. What does the long version look? And so with all these little projects, I just began to let in, you know, I finally produced this Hallmark film with my friend Nikki and an executive produced it. And we did it all on the creative end. And it taught me about formula and it taught me about pitching and it taught me about this is a very specific, um, I mean, their scripts are very specific. This This is what you have to learn to do it. And it made me see the business in that way where like, just like an actor, I can do comedy and drama and this and that was a writer. Where's my voice in that? Again, like kind of connecting all the voices together. So I just found like so much freedom also thinking, because I've been trying to have a family for a long time, like, okay, as a mom, then I could express and tell my stories in all these different ways and not have to show up on a set and be that perfect person that I feel like you have to be sometimes if you're not, you know, if you're on TV or whatever, you know? And then my heart was always like, if I just strip everything away, what do I want? And it would always be, film. I want to, I want to tell stories. I want movies. I want to work with women. I want to up, I want to rise other women's voices up. I, and that's why this blog, Nikki and I started this blog to like, you know, talk vulnerably about who 
what we're what we're going through as women. Like just because we're all doing it and we were so sick of like just like you talk you run into each other and it's like, how you doing? You're like, oh, I'm great. How are you? Great. And I I started being like, I'm not good. Mm. Like I'm not doing well. And then I started writing about that. So it just kind of all it's a long answer to your question, but it all became like it's either the next level or I have to live on this treadmill. And I've watched people that just live on that treadmill and it is a it can be a miserable existence. It is a constant proving, a constant struggle. So maybe I open the door and see if there's other doors that will bring me that same kind of joy and that same kind of collaboration without it being just this one door. And then all roads lead to Rome, right? Then it's like, okay, then I can pick meaningful projects as an actor. Then I can be brave enough, you know? The thing that really strikes me is this element of, and I've noticed this um, with a lot of people that we've talked to that that are sort of branching out and living their truth in a different way than just being an an actor, is the cure. You have a lot of curiosity for life. And I feel like it's it's an easy word to say, you know, it's like one of those catchphrases, stay curious. It's like, go yeah. F yourself, but yeah, but really you curi- stay curious. Yeah, right. You're right. <laughs> Curiosity <laughs> sounds like it's open. It's opened a lot of inner doors in you to like, keep exploring different avenues. I think staying curious and interested is a huge, seems like a huge key to branching out and not getting stuck on that treadmill, you know? And so yeah. You're a curious person. That's an interesting thing. I just, the word curious, she's so curious kept coming in in the best way. But don't you guys both think that sometimes I just think like, has this whole thing starting in theater school or before been, was it all just predicated on us not learning something about ourselves that we would eventually come to learn out of necessity that you have to do everything. You have to make your own stuff. You have to be curious. You have to be involved in a bunch of different things. I I mean, not like it's a conspiracy, but sometimes I'm like, this is, this would have been so easy just to say, but you should also always be entrepreneurial. You should also always be thinking about all of the ways that you can express yourself, not just stick it to just theater. And it's it's like everybody has gotten to that realization, but it's taken everybody a long time because we had to get there on our own. Yes, I agree. And I think, think, Gina, if someone had told me that in theater school, I would say, no, but I just want to be skinny and pretty and famous. I would have fought them. I would have fought them for it. And it was until I realized that skinny and and pretty and famous uh, could also lead to suicide that I that I shifted gears. It like took me that kind of, but you're right. It does seem like we all get, well, at least people I really respect and love get there. It's just, it takes us 40 years sometimes. Well, okay. You guys think about it. When you're in, when you come into theater school, most of us undergrad. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.